Before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. is where creative believers are encouraged to be great artists. My name is Matt Anderson. I am your mediocre host. Thank you so much for joining us. I would invite you to please subscribe to this podcast and uh, then on your platform, give us a five-star rating and review. You know, all the stuff you're supposed to do. Appreciate it very much. Well, last Monday was notable for a couple of reasons. First, It was the commemoration of Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday throughout the nation. Uh, A lot of folks had the day off. Many celebrations and remembrances were held across the country. Secondly, it was to be an unveiling of a new sculpture in Boston, Massachusetts, specifically in what's called Boston Common, which is the nation's oldest public park. Now, the city and site were specifically chosen for a number of reasons. Um, In Boston, back in 1952, two students were about to go out on a blind date. Coretta was studying voice at the New England Conservatory of Music. Martin was working on a Ph.D. in theology at Boston University. And King, at the moment, who seemed to have really no romantic prospects, asked a friend if he could set him up on a blind date with a nice Southern girl. That was how Martin Luther King Jr. and Coretta Scott met. And of course, the rest is history. It really is said that Coretta was the one who was initially the driver of the nonviolent protest for which the civil rights movement would come to be known. And she was the one who really influenced Martin, uh, persuading him to, to use that as his, um, his sort of vehicle for protest. Now, Boston is also the site of Martin Luther King's first major civil rights rally outside of the South that was in 1965. And there were 22,000 people there. Well, a few years ago in 2018, a group called Embrace Boston was formed, a nonprofit, in order to fund the creation of a statue in order to honor Dr. King. And over 126 proposals were submitted from across the nation and some around the world from various artists and sculptors. 
One of those artists was Hank Willis Thomas. Now, Thomas, who really his background was in photography. Um, photography still plays a, a huge role in his sculpting as he uses photographic moments often as inspiration for what he creates. And he had already been researching the Kings for other projects that he was uh, vying for. And then he got wind of the opportunity in Boston. So he began going through a number of archival images and photographs of uh, Dr. King. And um, he finally settled on a photo of both Martin and Coretta uh, embracing right after uh, they had been informed that Dr. King would be awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1964. And so with that as his idea, uh, Thomas would be given the nod to create this piece for Boston Common. And he spent the next few years working on what would come to be known as the embrace. Now the sculpture is 22 feet tall. It is 19 tons of bronze and it costs $10 million to make. By the way, all of that money was privately funded. There were no public tax dollars used for the creation of the sculpture. But the artist made a very interesting choice. Um, and I put interesting in quotes because it has been interesting over the last uh, week plus. Uh, he decided not to include the faces of Martin or Coretta in his sculpture, merely their arms really reduplicated uh, from the photographed embrace um, and a small part of the torso. The sculpture was unveiled publicly last Monday in Boston Common. Uh, the reactions have been sharp and swift. Um, many have been critical of the sculpture for not including the faces of Martin and Coretta. Others have stated that, uh, we'll keep it PG here, from certain angles, the sculpture seems to be almost obscene in appearance. Uh, the insults were fast and furious, um, politically coming from both the right and the left, by the way. Uh, it's rare that they agree these days, but there seemed to be some agreement on this. Now, while some took, uh, let's call it, the junior high approach to criticism. Uh, a columnist from the Washington Post said that the statue's lack of faces made it appear, quote, deracialized and a whitewashed symbol that distorted what the civil rights leader stood for. Now, something I've said repeatedly on this podcast is that when it comes to art, when it comes to the creative realm, there is always sort of an initial and visceral reaction. And then there is the eventual and evolved reaction. And many times in the world of art, what is initially hated and castigated eventually becomes accepted and sometimes ultimately, excuse the pun, is embraced. So what I want to do in this episode is just to give another perspective of the embrace uh, 
and maybe some of the behind the scenes of the why and the creation of the piece and really um, allowing the artist to uh, to say what it's about. So so that we can just kind of get past the easy, let's call it below the belt explanation and find out what actually went into this piece. So personally, I have to admit, initially I was I was certainly impressed with the exquisite detail of the arms and the hands. Uh, it was very well done. But I was also sort of left with a, huh, that's kind of different reaction. I didn't, I didn't go for where many were going because I remembered what I have said on this podcast <laughs> many times. And maybe it's because I try to make stuff myself, but I just purposely decided not to get carried away and not be like a six-year-old who's like, that looks weird, it's stupid, I hate it. Which kind of was what was filling up the airwaves in a lot of ways. And I've been doing this long enough to know, sometimes you, you have to sit with a piece. You have to sort of sit with a piece of art and kind of marinate on it before ultimately rendering uh, an opinion. So in a recent interview with the artist Hank Willis Thomas, uh, Time Magazine asked him about various specific insights into his choices for what he made when he created The Embrace. And I want you to hear some of them to sort of at least fill out your understanding of, of this sculpture and hopefully help you in then making a more informed and firm decision on it. Thomas said that he wanted to show the importance of the partnership with Martin and Coretta, specifically within the civil rights movement, not just their marriage, but in the civil rights movement. Specifically, he said he wanted to feature Coretta's shoulders. So Thomas said that the photograph actually shows Martin placing the, the full weight of his body on her shoulders, which Thomas is saying was quite apropos. Uh, and it was important, he thought, to depict both during the MLK era and then how after his assassination, the entire movement landed on her shoulders. He wanted to pay tribute to her in that way. He wanted to show that it wasn't just Martin who really won the, the Peace Prize. It was both of them. Now, in his research, specifically about Coretta Scott King, Thomas said that she often, both in writing and in spoken speech, uh, mentioned embracing. It was a common theme in her communication. And, and he felt that one of the keys of the civil rights movement of the 60s was really how intimacy played a role in civil rights. It really distinguished it from many other movements of that era. And he believed love was ultimately at the heart of what the civil rights movement was with, the, with uh, Martin Luther King and what they did specifically as a couple. So that photograph of their embrace became that sort of natural touchstone uh, for the sculpture. Hank Willis Thomas also urged both his interviewer and us of the necessity of seeing the statue in person in order to get the full effect of what he was trying to say through it. And, and I have to add here that 
I think that is always crucial. There is something different about seeing something three-dimensionally as opposed to two-dimensionally, either on the internet or television. There is something that can be grasped when you see something in person. And he said, when you do, really because of the choice he made to not include the full form, he said, one can literally walk inside, put that in quotes, or underneath. So you can walk into this sculpture and experience it from a completely unique angle. And in a sense, he said, you, the viewer, then become the heart of the piece. Uh, he also mentioned the concept of a, a Celtic love knot, which some of you have seen pictures of that. Uh, it involves the intertwining of two things. That makes a beautiful design. And he said from within the sculpture, their arms seem to form a Celtic love knot, both showing the love they had for one another, but then also hopefully the love that we can have for one another. But now the biggest criticism, why no faces? Why not properly honor the kings by depicting them facially? And Thomas said that he wanted to emphasize the pure embrace. Yes, by a couple who had fought long and hard, non-violently, to advance their cause, but also the ultimate goal of men and women of all races and cultures embracing one another in unity. It's a universal embrace that's meant for all of us, which he said was the ultimate goal of the movement. Now, I, I don't know if any of that changes your opinion of the piece at all. You, you might just look at it and say, I don't know, that looks like a phallus and just move on. But I think it's important to hear the rationale and motivation of the artist. Um, if nothing else, to show that there is a method behind the apparent madness. So again, the decision is yours, but I think we can't really render a verdict on anything until we hear from the artist first. So I wanted you, I wanted you to hear his perspective on this. And ultimately, time will tell how the sculpture is treated. I mean, we've seen in history, there are, there are sculpt, sculptures especially seem to get it more than <laughs> almost any other form of art. But there are, there are installations that have happened and people just hate it and they continue hating it and they never stop hating it. Uh, some, the opinion changes over time. You just never know um, un until the years elapse. And when we come back, I want to illustrate this with another piece in America uh, to show that we really just don't know how the perception of a piece can change over the years and even become something not originally intended, but special anyway. Thank you. 
There are many examples in American artistic history alone of things that have been written, painted, constructed, and sculpted that were initially ridiculed and dismissed, but as the decades wore on, become appreciated and in some cases even beloved. You know, the original World Trade Center, the Twin Towers, when they were built in the early 70s, were not embraced by critics or the citizens of New York City. Uh, its design attracted criticism from the American Institute of Architects and other groups. Lewis Mumford, author of The City in History, a book about New York City, and other works on urban planning, criticized the project. He described it and other new skyscrapers as, quote, just glass and metal filing cabinets. The Twin Towers were described as looking similar to the boxes that the Empire State Building and the Chrysler Building came in. Well, on this very podcast, I once talked about the Vietnam War Memorial. If you haven't heard that podcast, I'm going to invite you to listen to that. And how the initial design of two granite walls at an angle was seen as a complete insult to those who had fought and died in Southeast Asia. But of course that all changed when people started showing up to see it and experience it. I wanna give you another example of a sculpture from kind of closer to my home in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, probably the most unique art piece in the city is what's called the free stamp. Uh, it sits in Willard Park in downtown Cleveland, uh, just steps from City Hall and very near the Lake Erie shore. Uh, and it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a 49 foot long, 28 foot high red stamp with the word free on the bottom of it. It is an example of pop art, uh, which had been popularized in the 60s and 70s by Andy Warhol, Jasper Johns, uh, Roy Lichtenstein, and others, um, but done on a very large scale. So here's, here's how it came about in the city of Cleveland. In the 1980s, Standard Oil of Ohio, uh, that was associated with Amoco, uh, it had been founded by John D. Rockefeller. Uh, they built a new corporate headquarters in downtown Cleveland. The building is now the third tallest in the city, it soars 658 feet high, and it overlooks Public Square downtown. And among the things housed on Public Square is the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. Uh, this is a tribute to local men who fought and died for the Union uh, in the Civil War. So the CEO of the company, when they were when they had opened these new headquarters, he was a lover of pop art and he wanted to pay tribute to the soldiers in a modern way. So he commissioned a married couple whose first names I will not even attempt because I will butcher it, but their last names were Oldenburg and Van Bruggen. Um, and he wanted to have them construct the world's largest free stamp. And it was to be a tribute to the slaves that had been emancipated because of the Civil War and to be a reminder that the freedom we enjoy is because of the sacrifice of those who fought and died on our behalf. But a funny thing happened. 
while the stamp was being constructed before it was installed. So Ohio, the company, Standard Oil of Ohio, was acquired by British Petroleum. So they now took possession of the headquarters and all that it was doing. And the new owners did not really share the same whimsical appreciation of pop art the way the former CEO did. And they, they saw it more as an indictment or um, a ridicule of their corporation. And they really had no desire to have it in front of their building across the street from the Soldiers and Sailors Monument. So they scrapped the idea. And so the free stamp was, in a sense, denied its freedom. And it sat in a warehouse outside of Chicago for about five years. And then in the early 90s, around 1991, then mayor of Cleveland, George Voinovich, uh, brought the artist to Cleveland because he, he wanted it reinstalled. And they wanted to find another site for it. And eventually they settled upon Willard Park, uh, where it rests today. Now, while the original plan in Public Square was for it to stand straight up, and basically the word free at the bottom to really not even be visible, they felt that with the larger space in Willard Park, it should lie on an angle. <laughs> Oddly enough, we don't know if this was intentional. The stamp literally points in the direction of 200 Public Square, the building that commissioned and later scrapped it. Now, while all that history is interesting, as the years have gone by, the free stamp has evolved into something very different. It has actually become a natural place from which protests are done in the city. Now, I'm not even sure when it started, but today, be assured, if there is going to be a protest, if there's going to be a rally, political or otherwise, in the city of Cleveland, it will likely start or end at the free stamp. Now, of course, that wasn't remotely the reason for the installation, but it's the evolution sometimes of art. I mean, we just don't know over the decades or longer how something will be received. Can I pull out a couple of spiritual truths for us here? First, the artist, capital A. The artist knows what he is doing. Let's bring it to your life. God is the creator. He is the artist of your life. He is the author and the perfecter of your faith. He knows what he is designing in us. Even if others don't get it, even if we don't understand what he's doing at the time. Often we just have to sit with God's craftsmanship and just allow it to form through us to the world. And it's funny, just when we think we're finished products, God starts tinkering again and he starts molding and shaping and scraping and all kinds of things in us to increase our effectiveness. And if you're questioning the handiwork of God in your life, I would invite you to just sit down with the artist and get his perspective on what he's making in and from your life. Trust me, he will always add insight. Now, he may not tell you everything. Artists don't like to tell you everything because they don't want to They don't want to spoil it for you. They would rather you kind of stumble onto some things. 
And God might be a bit playful that way too. So don't be surprised. Secondly, we just don't know creatively what our work will do. If you're making stuff, all we can do is to create out of pure motives and a pure heart and leave the results to God and humanity. I mean, the stories are vast of artists whose work was not appreciated at all in their lifetime. I know that doesn't bring a lot of encouragement, but I have always been a believer that the things we make in order to glorify God and challenge or inspire other people will make their mark. Now, it may be only upon one person. It may be millions. But if we pursue excellence in what we make and we make it with pure motivation, I think it will achieve its purpose. Every well-aimed arrow lands. Just trust the process. And we have no idea where our work will be, where it will be taken, how it will be treated, whether or not it will be celebrated years later. We have no idea. I would just say, um, let's not get too caught up in legacy. I think that's a real temptation for us is to get really caught up in what am I leaving behind? What are they going to say about me when I'm gone? My word, dude, you can't control any of that. And the more you get wrapped up in that, the worse your work is going to be. Let's just do our best in the time that we're given. You know, some of us, uh, I know you may listen to this, you're not an artist, but maybe you're someone who builds people. You team up with God to improve people's lives. You might be a people helper, like a teacher or a pastor or a coach. And when it comes to helping people, we can only bless those who are near us right now. That's it. Most of us aren't given any kind of a big platform. That doesn't mean God doesn't love us or he doesn't trust us. It just means this is what he knows we can have and handle. Will what we do be remembered decades later? Eh, probably not, at least not actively. But in the eyes of the kingdom of God, the people that we bless will have family, friends, children who can pass that on forever, even if they don't realize they're doing it. And yeah, we get a part of that. Only heaven will reveal how much of an impact we've had because what we did was, well, embraced and we appreciate you being a part of the matcast please share this with a friend we would love to expand our matcast family if you have a question or a comment you can email me at matcastworld at gmail.com our theme music is by sound of fusion this has been a production of monumental ministries if you like more information or to hear our archives go to mattministry.com Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.